If you've been worshiping with us these last four weeks, then you've heard me talking about a Sanford Greenberg. Sandy is such an inspirational story. You remember that he was a Jewish boy from Buffalo. He was the son of a junk dealer. And yet he managed to get a full-ride scholarship to Columbia University there in New York City. And when he went to New York City, he really began to thrive. He loved the academics, loved the cultural scene, the museums, and, and the music. He thrived socially. Right off the bat, he met another freshman, a young man named Arthur Garfunkel. It turned out that they just hit it off. They were so much alike. They became best of friends. They would become roommates along with a man named Jerry Spire. But it turned out that Arthur and, and Sandy made a pact. They made a pact that if either one of them was ever found to be in a dire situation, a difficult moment, the other one would come to help them no matter what the circumstance. They had no idea in their youthful exuberance the commitment they were making. But what began to happen? After his sophomore year, Sandy began having trouble with his eyes. It turned out he had glaucoma, but it was misdiagnosed, and it went on for months. So that in February of 1961, Sandy found himself in a hospital in Detroit undergoing surgery to try to save his eyeballs, but a part of that surgery would be he would lose his sight. He would be blind for the rest of his life, starting at 19 years old. I mean, you can only imagine the despair, the overwhelming sense of anger to lose your sight. How hard that must have been. And he really did withdraw, and he found himself in a dark place. And it was his friend Arthur, though, who came up to Buffalo and told him, you've got to come back to Columbia. He did, because Arthur promised he would walk him to class and he would read to him from his books. They would get additional readers. Sandy went back against most people's advice and everyone telling him it was going to be impossible, but he went back and he excelled. So much so that when he graduated, he, he graduated Phi Beta Kappa. He graduated as president of his class. Now, Sandy would go on to live this incredibly meaningful and successful life. We've been looking at that over these last four weeks, but I, I wanted to say tonight, you know, I think the reason that I like the story so much was because of the spirit that Sandy brought to this tragedy in his life. Can you imagine having glaucoma, being misdiagnosed twice, two different doctors, and then losing your sight? It didn't have to happen, but it did. But Sandy was determined that the tragedy would not define his life. It may have been a tragedy that happened, but that was not going to define his life, that blindness. What he wanted was to get back to the world, to life that seemed to have now been denied him. And while he was in the hospital in Detroit, he made this promise to God. He said, God, if you will get me out of this dark hole... I promise that I will do everything I can to help other people not have to go through the grief I'm going through. Now, what I liked about that promise was that it wasn't a bargain with God. If you get me back my sight, I promise I'll go help people. 
Now, Sandy knew his sight was gone. What he asked for was, will you get me out of this dark hole? Will you give me light in the darkness? Lead me somehow back to life, to the world that has now been denied me. And through the grace of God, and through the love of his wife Sue, and the love of his friend Art and Jerry, that's exactly what happened. I mean, Sandy would go on to graduate school, earning a Ph.D. at Harvard and political science. You know, he had become an inventor, an entrepreneur, a successful businessman. He did marry Sue. He had a family. He's now a grandfather. No, these last 60 years, now at 79, he can look back and say, I've lived a life of meaning and joy. He is full of gratitude for the gift of his life and that he has moved back into life. And he fulfilled that promise because in his later years, he's now become a real philanthropist. Now, he now sits on hospital boards that deal with blindness, trying to eradicate blindness forever around the world. And he and his wife, Sue, have set up the Stanford and Susan Greenberg Awards. And on December the 14th, just a little over a week ago, they had a wonderful presentation where they started showing these scientists, these researchers, several of them who were being given awards. Sandy and Sue put up $3 million to be given to these people to encourage them to work hard to eradicate blindness. And we learned all about their research and the things they've accomplished in the last eight years. And it is amazing. We watch to see how, how blindness is truly being slowly eradicated, to see how the darkness is being pushed back, how the curtain is coming up and the light is beginning to shine for millions of people to be able to see, to find the light in the darkness that will lead us back to life. It's really what we all want because we all know what it's like to be in darkness. We all understand grief and pain and what it means to be brokenhearted, to have struggled in relationships that may have led to divorce, to struggle with health that changes your life, to lose someone you love to death. It leaves you in the dark. And of course, this year, 2020, what a year we've lived through. Over and over, you keep hearing people talk about, we're in the darkest part, where it's in the dark. It was a tough time. Tough time this year because of this pandemic of the COVID virus. I mean, it's one of those kind of things that the COVID virus, it's led to, to so many struggles, to feeling alone and separated and isolated it's led us into a difficult, dark time and a place in our lives. It has been so hard, and what we need is some light in the darkness. And I think that's what we all enjoy about Christmas Eve. Why we enjoy this Christmas Eve story? Because it's a story of Mary and Joseph and a baby Jesus in a cattle stall in Bethlehem. It's not where they wanted to be. 
They wanted to be home in Nazareth with family and friends. But it's where they were, alone. Mary about to have a baby. You can only imagine how afraid they were. The two of them in a cattle stall? Mary trying to deliver a baby? Talk about feeling alone in the dark. And yet it was that night that a star began to shine, a light overhead, the gift of God's love coming into the world. A light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. It really is a story all about the gift of God coming into the world and it's what gives us hope. Hope in the midst of the dark night. And that's really what I want us to talk about tonight. I want us to think about how do you and I find hope in the darkness? How does the message of Christmas help us to find that hope in the darkness? And there's really just two things I want us to think about tonight. I think that one of the reasons that you and I feel hopeless sometimes and, and our lives seem in a dark place is when we feel alone and that the world is out of control. When things are happening that we have no power of, over, and we can't change anything. When you start having those kinds of moments, you just start feeling alone, in the dark, afraid, because it all feels out of control. You know, I, I, I look at Mary and Joseph, you know, this is not what they wanted. Life was going along just fine at home. They were betrothed to be married. And then Mary is found to be with child of the Holy Spirit. That certainly caused a great struggle between she and Joseph and their relationship. And I'm sure it caused struggles with relationships in the community. And then at nine months pregnant, a census they didn't want a census. They didn't ask for a census. And now they're on their way to Bethlehem. You get to Bethlehem and there is no room at the end because so many people are there. It wasn't their fault. But now they wind up in a cattle stall, out and alone. No, it's easy to feel like the world is out of control and you're being swept along. And, and yet you haven't done anything to cause all this. What we sometimes forget is, even in the darkness, there is one thing you do control. In the darkness, there is one thing that you still control. Because in the darkness, you can still choose to love. That's a choice you get to make. No matter what is going on in the world around you, and all these things that you are not in control of, you still are in control of your choice on whether you choose to love, to love God, to love your family, to love your neighbor, to love the stranger. That's a choice that you get to make. That Christmas night was about God coming into the world. And it was about a night of love. A love of Mary and Joseph and a baby and the shepherds and wise men and people around the world. Light shining in the darkness, calling us to love. It's a choice we can make. And when you and I come together and love each other, it creates strength and hope 
in the darkness. You remember that this year has been the 75th anniversary of the end of World War II. We took the time to recognize that in worship and to, to give God thanks for, for the end of the war and all those who sacrificed. And You know, I feel so blessed that I was able to come to this church 30 years ago. And we had so many veterans, people who had served in World War II. And I remember them to this day. Most of them now are in the kingdom of heaven. But I still remember them, can call them by name, give thanks for their lives and what they meant and what they did for our country and our world. I thought it was important to remember the 75th anniversary of the end of World War II. But as I got to thinking so much about it, it reminded me of one of my favorite books called Once Upon a Time by Bob Green. It's the true story of what took place at the beginning of World War II there in North Platte, Nebraska. You may remember the story. North Platte, Nebraska, it's kind of out in the middle of nowhere. And back in 1941, it was a, it was a railroad station for the Union Pacific Railroad. Now, what was happening was, I mean, you'd be traveling across country in a train and you had to have stops where you could get on water, fuel, um, supplies, and keep moving across the country. Well, on December the 7th, 1941, Pearl Harbor was bombed and we all suddenly felt like the world was out of control. Talk about people afraid. A dark night. Everyone was scared. There started to be lots of troop movements. Boys were now, all the soldiers being shipped to the East Coast. Other ones being shipped to the West Coast. We were going to defend our borders. They were preparing to go across the Atlantic. They were preparing to fight into the Pacific. And so all these trains were now going to be traveling through North Platte, Nebraska. And so 10 days after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, troops were starting to be moved, but it was very secretive. And as they were being moved, a rumor spread through town that Company D of the Nebraska National Guard was going to be coming through town and would obviously make a stop. Now, this is a town of about 12,000 people in that day. People got so excited that was going to be their sons, their husbands, their friends. And so people went home and they started making sandwiches and, and getting goodie bags together and sweets and a cake and getting gifts and magazines. And they all wanted to go down to the station if they came through and be able to surprise them and give them something for Christmas. And so they got word that the train might be coming through. The town went down. The train pulled in and the people stormed onto the cars. And they looked around and they didn't recognize anybody. It got a little awkward. And then finally they found out this was Company D of the Kansas National Guard. And so there was a moment of, what do we do? And the people of North Platte decided, we've made the sandwiches, we've made the gifts. They just started giving to all these soldiers. And then the train pulled out. It's usually there about 15 minutes. And the people of North Platte, well, they were disappointed they didn't get to see their boys. And yet, there was something so very special about reaching out to these other young men who were all heading off to war. So much so that the next day, Ray Wilson, Ray Wilson wrote an article for the North Platte newspaper that said, 
yesterday I was down at the station and we were giving out these gifts. And though we were disappointed it wasn't our boys, it felt so good to be able to bless and to love on these young men. And I want to do that again. And so anybody who wants to join me, we're going to get together and try to get organized and we're going to do it again. It took them uh, several days to be able to get organized. And when they were, they were ready to start on December the 25th, 1941, Christmas Day. Five people showed up that day. But when they knew when a train would probably come through, they had their sandwiches and coffee and all kinds of things. And when the train stopped, they went on and they distributed. And then the train moved on. It was LaVon Kemper. She was 26 years old. She was single. Who began to go through town and telling everybody, do you know how important this is? She said, I feel so alone in the world. And I'm so afraid. But going down and doing something and showing love to all these young men, it did something for me. And I think we need to be doing it for all these trains that come through. LaVon went everywhere talking and said, join us the next morning. And so the next morning, uh, people were there. And the number started growing throughout the day. There was just two or three trains that would come through, but they had the coffee ready, the food ready, the gifts but North Platte, Nebraska would start having trains ramp up. They went from one or two or three. In the end, they'd be having more than 20 trains a day come through their town. More than six million soldiers would pass through North Platte. And they were there for everyone until the end of the war. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, they never missed another train. Now, you've got to remember, this was a time of rationing. They still found the bread, the meat, the coffee, the oranges and the apples and all. They still found it all. And they prepared it. And then they got a, a piano they put down there on the platform. And they made the whole area look kind of like a canteen. And now word had kind of spread among troops. And when they'd pull in, they had a hope of what was going to happen Fifteen minutes, you could jump off. They're playing the piano. The girls are there to dance. You got to dance for 15 minutes. You got a hug. You went up being given a plate of food and a gift and back onto the train and off you went. Six million soldiers. All those years, seven days a week, 24 hours a day. Didn't miss a one. You didn't have disposable plates. No, you, you had to give them these plates and cups and they'd take their coffee and they'd, the next stop and they unloaded them and then they got on a train coming back the other way and then the people would wash them and it'd be going out again. The effort was enormous. A town of only 12,000 people, the cost was exorbitant. And yet the people of North Platte, in the midst of such a dark night, they chose to love. One of those who did that was Elaine Wright. Elaine Wright had a son who was in the Navy fighting in the South Pacific. But she was there from the beginning. She really cared about what was going on and there in the canteen, helping to cook and, and there to play and, and to greet these young men. And as one day while she was there working at the canteen that she got word that her son had been killed in action. 
she silently left the canteen and went home. And they didn't see her for days. And then one morning while they were there early preparing for the trains that day, working in the canteen, the ladies who were there looked up and there she stood in the doorway. And everyone grew silent and looked at her. And finally a lady, a lady went up to Elaine and hugged her neck and they started to cry. And another one came up and hugged her neck and started to cry. And another one came up and started to cry. And after they all had hugged and cried, it was Elaine who said, I cannot do anything to help my son. But I can do something to help somebody else's son. And she never missed a day. In the midst of those darkest moments, when you can't change what may be happening in the world around you, you do still have the power to choose to love. It was there in Bethlehem, in a world that Mary and Joseph were being swept along and it was out of control and there are things they could not change, that they experienced the gift of God's love that night with a baby in Bethlehem. It's why you and I love this night, because we experience God's love. And we are reminded again that we are called to love, even in the darkness. It's how you find strength and hope. And so secondly, you know, I think that Christmas reminds us that even in the darkness, we're not alone. We're not alone. It was Mary and Joseph there in Bethlehem feeling so alone from family, from friends, in a cattle stall, the two of them. But then there were angels and shepherds and wise men and a star above, a light shining in the darkness to say that God was looking down on them. Then in the midst of all they were going through that was difficult, they weren't alone. They really were being wrapped in God's love. I really have always loved 1 Corinthians 13 when Paul was writing to the Corinthians about love. And you remember the great love chapter when Paul says, love is patient and kind, it's never arrogant or boastful or rude, and so on. But one of the lines that I've always especially loved in 1 Corinthians 13 is when Paul says, right now we see through a glass darkly, but one day we shall see face to face. Because, you know, I've always felt like you live in a world right now with so much mystery, things we don't understand, things that don't seem to make sense. I feel like we see through a glass darkly. We do not see clearly. But one day, one day when you and I enter into the kingdom of heaven, you get to see clearly, to understand and I have a belief that when you and I get to heaven, one of the things that we're going to see clearly is that the whole time we've been alive, God has been watching over us, sharing light in the darkness, enough light in the darkness to help us take another step and another step and lead us back into life. 
Sandy Greenberg tells about one of those moments that truly was the watershed moment in his life back when he was still a teenager struggling now with blindness, trying to find out how does he make it in the world. He wasn't using a cane. He wasn't using an eye-seeing dog. He did not want to be defined as a blind person. He was Sandy who was blind, but he was Sandy and he was trying to live in the world. And how do you do that? Well, he and Art, they had gone down to Midtown and they were at Midtown when Sandy said he needed to get back uptown to ca uh, campus because he had scheduled a reader. And it was Art who said, well, I can't go right now. I need to go draw the Seacrest building, uh, the Seagram's building. It turns out you know, Art was in architecture and he said, I've got to have a drawing of it. It's part of my, my class. It's a major part of my grade. I have to do it. It's due tomorrow. So if you want to wait and stay here with me, I'll go draw and then I can take you back to campus. Or otherwise, you're going to have to go do it on your own. And Sandy somehow just was like, I've got to do this. I have to be there. And Art said, fine. Then go. And Art left. And now Sandy was suddenly alone. Talk about feeling alone in the darkness. Close your eyes and just keep them closed for a couple minutes. And then think about trying to move around your room, move around out in the world. He was in Midtown and he needed to get to Grand Central Station. And so he started walking and he said, I started walking. I just had my hands out. And he said, I must have looked so, so foolish or so crazy. I'm walking along my hands out just in case I tried to bump into anything or anyone. And he said, you know, there are so much kind sparks of love out there in the world. A lady came over to him and said, may I help you? Are you okay? Yes. Are you sure you're okay? Where are you going? I'm trying to get to Grand Central Station. Could you give me any directions? And she said, well, you know, I'm kind of headed that way. I, you can go with me for a little ways. And so he went with her and he said, you know, just being with this woman... And now heading down the street with her towards Grand Central Station, you know, just made me feel so much better. It gave me hope. But after a while, she said, I have to go a different direction now. Are you sure you're going to be okay? Yes. Well, you need to go on ahead about another 16 steps and then you'll want to take a right and it's about another 50 steps and then you should be right in front of Grand Central Station. Sandy said, I wondered how did she know how many steps it was going to be? But she left and he said, now I suddenly felt very alone and afraid again. He started leaning on the building and putting his hands on the building to kind of walk along, just feeling up close to the building, counting out his steps. And sure enough, came to the end of a corner. He could turn right, started walking down this alley, feeling the buildings when he just ran smack into this man. And Sandy said he was such a big man and so solid Obviously, I couldn't see him, but boy, I could tell how he felt. It just knocked him to the ground. And the man began to apologize, and he reached down and picked Sandy up and said, Are you all right? Yes, yes, it's my fault. No, no, it must be my fault. People are always falling on to me. It turned out that he was a boxer. And I mean, he was a big, strong guy. And the guy said, What are you doing? Where are you going? I'm looking for Grand Central Station. 
And Sandy said, I'll never forget. He took me by the shoulders and he turned me so gently. These big hands, he turned me so gently and said, straight ahead, you'll get there. And Sandy took off. He got near and he began to recognize some of the sounds. And he had been in Grand Central Station many times with sight. He knew it was an enormous cavernous place inside. He managed to get to the doors and go inside, find a stair rail and begin walking down some stairs. But how in the world was he ever going to find his train station? Again, he continued to walk along, his hands out in front of him. He said, I must have looked like I sleepwalking. One thing he didn't think about, he would bump into people. He would run into things like that. But he didn't think about all the benches. And he started smacking his shins against the benches. And soon they were bleeding. And he felt blood running down his legs into his socks. He would fall over suitcases, briefcases, run into people. And he began to develop a, a theme. He would bump into someone and apologize and then ask for directions. Bump into someone, apologize, ask for directions. He felt so alone and afraid, and now those fears were welling up. But he kept going forward, and they kept trying to follow the directions, and he found finally the stairwell, grabbed hold of the, the handrail, and was able to go down the stairs, and then he bumped into the turnstile. He had a coin with him, managed to find where to put it in, went through the turnstile, and now he was underground there on the subway platform. And that was a victory to think he had actually made it that far alone. And now he was walking along trying to figure out where he'd get to the edge of the platform. And as he's walking along with his hands out, he ran into a beam straight between his hands. An iron beam. Smacked him right in the head. Boy, he could tell his head began to bleed. It staggered him. He's trying to wipe the blood and stop it from bleeding. What were the odds? Right between his hands. He now was staggering, trying to move towards the platform. He stumbled and fell, landed on his chest, and he reached out to feel, and he couldn't feel anything. And he realized he had almost fallen on the track. He was halfway on to it, and as he lay there, he thought, if a train had been coming, it would have cut him in two. Fast, quick, simple. And at that moment, it was the lowest point. He began to wish that he could die. This had been so crazy, so foolish. To think he could do this, he just lay there. And then he began to think about Sue and how much she loved him and invested in him. He began to think about Art and Jerry and how much they loved him and were investing in him. And he thought about how much he loved them. And it began to give him strength and hope. He pulled himself back up onto the platform. He stood back until he heard the train and then he managed to step on and get in through a door. He walked forward until his shins, which hurt so badly, bumped the edge of a seat and he sat down. 
At least he was sitting down. And now the subway would start to take him home. It was a subway that was the cross town. Only one stop, the other end of town. He had no one to get off. But while he was sitting there, he suddenly recognized a smell. He couldn't quite identify it, but it was something familiar. And it made him just feel a little bit of peace. He rode along still thinking, how am I going to navigate this next station? When finally the train came to a stop, he got up to get out. And as he got out, he now ran into another man. He apologized. He said, how do I get to the train that is going to uptown? I need 116th Street. And he said the voice was now muffled. I could barely hear it, but it said, go right straight ahead. And so he took a ride. He took his steps. He got to the edge of the train. He found the next train. He stood on the station. It came. He managed to go through the door and get onto the train and to sit down. And now he knew he would hear the announcement at the 116th Street stop. He sat there feeling exhausted physically, emotionally. He had blood still running down his head and down his legs. He felt disheveled. Finally, they came to the 116th Street station. He stepped out into the train station. He walked along until finally he got to the steps. He grabbed the handrail, took the steps out of the subway. And finally, he came to the top. And you could just tell by the smell and the sounds. He knew he was home at the university. He felt his way along until he got to the iron gates that signify the opening to the main entrance there into Columbia. And he walked through those gates and he had made it. He had made it. And as he started to walk along, he ran into another person who said, Excuse me. And then in his own voice, Art said, I knew you could do it. But I wanted you to know you could do it. He confessed to Sandy he really didn't have to go draw the Seagram's building. No, he had been with Sandy the whole time, watching over him the whole journey. And Sandy was so thrilled, he grabbed onto Art. He was much bigger than Art. And he began to swing him around, singing and laughing there in this opening of Columbia, swinging, and they waltzed. And I want to read you what Sandy had to say about that moment. That moment at the gates of the university, the moment of my triumph, survival of that subway odyssey, was the moment when fear, fear of risk, fear of movement, fear of change, was vanquished within me forever. The angel said, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy which will come to all the people. For born to you this day in the city of David is a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The one who watches over you. You are not alone. A light shines in the darkness. And the darkness is not overcome it.
It's in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.